Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of You Have to Watch This. This is our new podcast. I'm Clayton Terry. And I'm Ted Ryan. This is going to be a podcast where each week, Ted and I recommend a movie to one another that the other person hasn't seen yet. This came out kind of naturally in conversation. I've been dying to get Ted to watch uh, the movie that we started with this week. And Ted was like, I'll do it if you watch this one. And we love talking about movies, so we figured we'd record it. Nothing's ever gone wrong with that. (laughs) And uh, I had a lot of fun doing your uh, Star Wars episode of yeah. the Terry Talks podcast. You can find it on Spotify and iTunes and, yeah, and everywhere. everywhere you find podcasts. Uh, yeah. Got the plug out of the way. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll bring it back up at the end. But... <laughs> Multiple times. Yeah. <laughs> the more plugs, the better. That's what I always say. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm an electrician. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's weird that we're doing this then. Yeah. All right. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Yeah, we're just going to jump into the movies. We figured we would do a coin flip to decide whose yes. movie gets to go first. So I believe I was heads and you will be tails. So. Ted for tails. That's going to be the rule. So I got oh. a little penny here. Okay. That was a very weird coin flip. <laughs> you don't flip it with your thumb? No. It landed on heads. All right. Take it away. That means we're starting with my movie. I should say our theme this week was kind of foreign language we're gonna shoot for a theme each week so uh, the uh, conversations aren't too i actually i think we didn't we just kind of coincidentally had films very similar to each other that's which true. we'll talk about later but i don't know if they're that similar other than that they are both foreign language but we, there's we'll, we'll i've been thinking it. about it we'll, but take it away enough foreplay the movie i made ted watch <laughs> is 2018 it's roma um this was directed by alfonso Cuaron. IMDb plot summary, a year in the life of a middle-class family's made in Mexico City in the early 1970s. For those of you that listen to the Terry Talks podcast, you'll know that um, <laughs> Ethan, Ryan, and I, we all watched this movie together, and it ranked within all of our lists. It was their number one. Um, and this, I wanted Ted to watch this movie because this movie is one that demands to be experienced, um, unlike a lot of other movies that I've seen in 2018 and that I've seen recently other than um, Children of Men, which is also Alfonso Cuaron and will probably come up at some point in this podcast. It's one that evokes such strong emotions, um, the whole range of emotions in me that I really enjoy talking about it and breaking down the shot composition and how that plays into the themes that Alfonso Cuaron is going for. And yeah, Ted, what do you think of this movie? Okay. I liked it. I I thought it was a good film. However, I feel that I wasn't... It took a while for the film to really win me over. Okay. Um, I, I do appreciate films that have kind of like a slow burn aspect. Like, I, I like the kind of the slower pace to the film. It kind of lets you find out the story on your own without speaking to the camera. You know, it's... Yeah. It, it, it was very natural in that manner. I was definitely, I really enjoyed it by the end, how we're beginning off, or starting off. I didn't really know what to expect going in. I didn't really know anything about it. I just knew it was a foreign language film, and it was in black and white, and you had told me to watch it. So I went into it blind, and, you know, we have the story of uh, a maid, a house servant uh, in Mexico City, and I believe 1970? Yeah. Uh, and we follow her story as she, you know, 
what's her place in the family that she works for and how she slowly kind of becomes almost like a big sister or a, a maternal figure to the children. Um, her relationship issues with, uh, was it Fairman? Fairman, yeah. Okay. Um, and that aspect, as well as the um, greater turmoil happening politically and socially at the time. You know, yeah. a, a small story that's part of a larger picture, a very personal story. What you, you mentioned in the introduction that it demands to be experienced. Explain. What do you mean by that? This movie is one of the best examples I find of like show don't tell. It doesn't have scenes of the mother in the story sitting down with her children talking about how they're going to hire um, Cleo. It doesn't have like these long scenes of dialogue that explain how the characters are feeling. It instead asks you to feel empathy for them without having to like lay it out for you, if that makes sense. Um, I follow. I will say this. The main performance... Very understated and very layered. This, you know, I think often, like, the what we think of acting, we think of, like, loud, bombastic performances of characters slamming their fists on the table and yeah. demanding this or that. <laughs> and, you know, this was an excellent performance. Like, this feels like a real person. I, I always enjoy stories that we kind of jump into one that's already in progress. Um, she feels, like, fully realized. Um, it's a very, like, gentle and authentic performance. And you could tell that, like, in her eyes what she's feeling, but the way she keeps herself reserved and, like, guarded. One of the surprising things about this Oscar season is she's gotten, well, she got an Oscar nom. She hadn't been getting much, much buzz before, and I didn't really... I didn't think the Academy would go for it, so the thought never crossed my mind. But you're right that the Academy focuses more on these bombastic performances where it's like Leo pours his heart and soul into this <laughs> into this um, <laughs> rancher who eat, he eats a bison heart even though he's a vegan. And it's like they demand the dramatic nature. And this is just a woman who's playing a character in Alfonso Cuaron's memories. Um, and that's what it feels like. It feels like you're watching a memory but at the same time the nostalgia is removed from it like nostalgia i find right. can be dehumanizing so this is it's like you're existing within a memory but you're one of your own memories you know what's interesting it's it's alfonso coron coron i'm gonna get that wrong <laughs> yeah uh it's it's weird stepping into someone else's nostalgia yeah. You know, like, I have no experience of Mexico City in the 1970s, but the way <laughs> everything is presented makes me feel as if I remember it. You know? Those, exactly. Uh, the way scenes are, the scenes are filmed, you know, where wide angle lens and very slow and, you know, we sometimes they'll zoom in on a detail, but mm -hmm. it, it's very reserved and, you know, it lets you choose what you want to focus on, which I love. Yeah. And there's a stillness to the film that is, really excellent yeah i've always described the character of the camera as like a young child that whose eyes kind of wander and just because the story is happening it doesn't necessarily mean the camera's interested in it right um you'll see that again in children of men and gravity even where yeah sandra bullock's flying through space or um clive owen is running through a battlefield but 
that may not be the main focus of the camera. It's showing you this fully realized world, but not in the way we typically see. You right. know what I mean? Which brings to light the architecture and the way it's displayed in this film is downright beautiful. Yeah. Like, specifically, like, I'm thinking of the hospital scene with the, the tall rectangular columns that seem like they yeah. just extend forever and the way the light and shadow interacts with those columns and you know there's such a wide range of places in this film it, it's like it's, it's a feast for the eyes you know and again like you're allowed to take it in the way you want it to and <laughs> I, I just loved some of the tracking shots through Mexico City where Cleo is walking through crowds of people and, you know, cars are honking at each other and, you know, everyone's dressed in that manner. It, again, it's like, I feel like I'm there. Mm-hmm. Uh, feels like you're remembering a time when you were there. That's, yeah, that's what I feel yeah, like. Yeah, like you don't remember every moment of the day, but you remember when you crossed the street or you went yeah. into this deli, you know, it's little moments that are meaningless mm-hmm. that you remember. Uh, I love the lines from the little kid where he talks about, like, when I was old, I was a sailor, and I yeah I don't know what that means, except for the fact that it kind of foreshadows, when he talks about the sailor and the water, mm. um, it kind of foreshadows the climax of the movie. But other than that, I don't know what the point of those were, but it, I, I thought it was really interesting. I feel like in the hands of a lesser director, I would groan at those lines, <laughs> you know, like, oh, here's the screenwriter talking to us directly, you know? Like, here's the themes of the film, but... I think the way the kid pulled it off, it was a believable believable performance of some stupid thing a kid would say. It was, yeah. But, I, like, weirdly deep, like, very dreamlike. Mm-hmm. You know, like, what? What do you mean you were a sailor? <laughs> it's using this character to further that theme of memories and time and how we experience it and who we experience it with. Speaking of which, let's talk about the family. In the yeah. film, I loved the family dynamic. Yeah. It's the, the, the way the siblings interact with each other, you know, insulting each other and, <laughs> you know, and fighting all the time, but kind of getting along at the same time. Yeah. Um, and the whole, you know, that's one of the main themes of the fam or the film is family and, uh, Cleo's lack thereof and her kind of placing herself within the new one. Uh, what were your thoughts on the way the family was presented? Yeah, I think this is actually a good time to kind of get into spoilers. So, um, warning for that. I really like the way the family was described uh, as well. I feel like it would have been so easy to have turned any of the other family members into a caricature. Like, right. make the father physically abusive as well as cheating on someone. Make him, like, really mean to Cleo. Make the mom mean to Cleo make the kids like have one that's a brat and have one that's really nice they you they have tendencies to like Mm -hmm. horse around more some of the kids than others but they aren't caricatures they're fully fleshed out people even though they're like very much side characters i guess i guess except for the mom i would say the mother's performance i thought was fantastic and the, the, the the standout scene to me is when they are in, I believe, Veracruz, the beach. Yeah. And they, they they go out to have dinner. She breaks the news to them that they will be having a divorce and that things yeah. will be changing. And just the way 
you know, some of the kids don't react. Some of them don't understand. And the oldest full on like breaks out crying. And the way she kind of displays that maternal instinct felt really real. In addition to that, the letter writing scene where she's telling the kids what to write yeah. in the letters to the father. She knows what she's doing, you know, and the way she she displays that to the children is fascinating. You know, like she's trying to not whitewash it, but make it easier on them. Yeah. She needs to kind of be their rock. You know what I mean? Like if she's breaking down they won't have anyone to turn to. Mm-hmm. So she has to find the strength within herself. And maybe that's why it takes so long for her to kind of break the news to them. But going back to that scene, the dinner, a lesser a lesser director would have broken the news um, with a like close-up on the mom and then done cuts to each kid and see their reaction. And then like last cut is um, the kid crying and then reverse shot of the mom consoling him. But Alfonso Cuaron holds it in this wide angle and it's detached. We have to put is, ourselves yeah. at the table mm-hmm. to relate to it. We don't even see uh, the two kids closest to us. Like, they are turned away from us. Yeah. And it's it's not asking us to relate to an individual character. It's asking us to relate to this experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a lot of what um, Alfonso Cuaron's going for in this movie. But can we talk about that ending beach scene? I broke down crying at that scene that scene got me good like you know i started with the film and i was like okay you know i'm not really feeling it and then around the midpoint i'm like okay i'm kind of interested yeah and then by the time they got to vera cruz i was like all right this is really good at this point when she when she just breaks down uh crying that that got me good that that whole scene of her grabbing the children and bringing them back was that one take yeah, it was. And the sun perfectly, like, sets as they're all hugging. I'm like, this might be the best movie, like, objectively ever Did made. they get that on the first take? Or, like, how how long did they try to shoot that scene? That must have been so difficult. I have no idea. I know, like, Alfonso Cuaron, he's not afraid of using CGI. He obviously uses it, like, really well. He integrates mm-hmm. it into practical and, like, actual scenes so i wouldn't be surprised if that's maybe a couple cuts stitched together or if the sun is like cgi a little bit but it looks so good that i almost don't care and the same thing with like the planes we see earlier like Mm -hmm. the first five minute shot of the water and the drain and the shadow or the yeah the shadow of the plane kind of goes over it very very mesmerizing yeah you know the 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 rhythm of her kind of brushing the water away is very relaxing but unsettling at the same time yeah and from the first shot of the film i think that kind of properly lays out one of the main themes like the like destructive nature of water kind of yeah water comes up again and again and again throughout the film uh you know there's that opening shot uh there's a moment where she breaks something uh that kind of foreshadows her her losing her child yeah you know, the beach scene where nearly, you know, kills the children or envelops the children. What what do you what do you make of the water or the use of water? Um, so a couple things. Alfonso Cuaron in his other movies uses water a lot as well. So I don't know why How does it compare to the other others? So he always I don't really want to spoil stuff, but nah, this isn't a spoiler. He always kind of ends his movies around water, and I personally take it to mean 
like rebirth that is what i find most common in movies is that water is used as like an analogy to a baptism i mean obviously there's the examples of like godfather and um other movies that aren't coming to mind other than alfonso (laughs) Cuarón movies but i think that maybe it represents kind of cleo accepting kind of being reborn into this family and accepting the fact that she loses her child in that earlier scene and i think the reason she's upset afterwards is she's upset with herself that she is grateful this is how it ended up turning out you know what i mean because she she says i didn't want i didn't want him which is kind of like a fascinating thing to explore how we can feel bad for or feel good for something that society tells us should be bad yeah you know part of me wonders like how the film would differ if the baby was born you know like what would that child's life be like and you know it's like it's like a fascinating like what if i picture um the child would have been integrated into the family because the mother seems supportive and i can picture like that kid running around with the younger ones in a couple years. Part of me feels as if because of the loss of her child, the family that employs her accepts her into like the family unit. I think they had always accepted her. I think maybe this very traumatic um, experience of like almost drowning or your kids almost drowning, depending on which perspective you're looking at forces you to kind of reflect on your life and that's why the gratitude they have for Cleo and one another kind of comes out because when they all embrace it's all of them it's that family unit of Cleo the mom and all the kids well I say so because in the beginning of the film I had a much different feeling of how their dynamic existed it you know the mother is yelling at Cleo a lot uh the kids you know they're mostly nice to her but they kind of boss her around in a way a little bit um and she just didn't really look like she enjoyed being there you know like and uh, the grandmother yells at her once or twice and i think over the course of the film you know they treat her better and better yeah i mean that could definitely be true i mean in the mother's case she loses um the father he leaves her and she's kind of only left with cleo to confide in because everyone else is the young kids, or I don't, the grandmother isn't as prominent later on in the movie either. No. So, yeah, I mean, maybe that is, like, the slow realization. Um, I never thought they were that mean to Cleo. I took it as we're all human, and sometimes when we get angry at people we can't yell at, we take it out on people we can. So the mom is frustrated with the husband, But no matter what she does, she can't get him to stay in their domestic life. So she takes it out on her maid. You know what I mean? And the kids don't want to go to school, so they feel like they can take it out on Cleo. It's this... It's human, I I find. That's fair. We brought him up earlier, but one of the most fascinating parts was Ferriman and his dedication to martial arts. (laughs) Yeah. First, I just love the way it's introduced. He... You know, having an intimate moment in their in his bedroom, his apartment, and he just starts posing with uh, or performing with a shower curtain rod. I yeah, think. and his dick hanging out, dick flopping around, and uh, you know when he got introduced, I'm like, oh, this is a I like this guy, and like, you know, 
the when she breaks the news to him that she's pregnant in the theater and he just walks <laughs> out and leaves. <laughs> yeah. That that I think was like the turning point in the film where like it's not like there's a dramatic speech or anything. He's just gone. He's left her life and everything that he pronounced himself, the virtues that he held himself true to uh, were false, you know? And then later when she finds him with the whole troupe of <laughs> yeah. performing uh, martial artists, martial artists, uh, you know, he, he speaks to her very abusively and violently. And it's, it's interesting how so like that kind of paradoxical nature uh, comes through him. I didn't think he was particularly complicated or paradoxical. I think he was a guy who wanted sex and then suddenly some responsibility was attached to it and he left. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't think of him as a new, as a particularly nuanced character. Um, maybe that's a fault of my own and not being able to empathize with him, but the way he's presented is very interesting. And I, I thought it's hard for me to point towards, but yeah, that plot line I enjoyed. And when he shows up later, uh, in the furniture store during the yeah. revolution, right. I forgot about that. Yeah. Wow. You know, like what a, a amazing is. And there again, you kind of see what a bad person he is because they like follow the people in and shoot them and i personally don't know the history of the mexican political discourse that was happening in the 70s but i don't think following people and shooting them is particularly beneficial (laughs) i was thinking about that while watching it and how we mentioned earlier that it's like a nostalgia someone else's nostalgia have you ever read like an annotated book I think so yeah kind of like where like in the margins they explain like different aspects of what they're talking about Oh, it's not, more prevalent not in like translated works. Yeah, I would love to see an annotated film, maybe or uh, commentary track that explains like historically what is going on in the setting. You know yeah. what, what? I feel like there's so much context for both these films that I'm missing out on. Like that, mm-hmm. I'm. I wonder. Like it's clearly there's more happening that I'm just unaware of. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think. That would add another layer. I mean, who knows if we'll ever get like a commentary because this is a Netflix original, so you don't really. I'm pretty sure they've done that for really one or two of their original films. I don't know what, but I, I feel like in the audio settings, I've seen that somewhere. Oh, okay, that'd be sick to check out. I hope they do that. Yeah. (laughs) Any closing thoughts about Roma? It's a difficult film to talk about. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. It's one you just kind of experience, you know. Like I was saying, to bring it all back. It demands to be experienced. It demands to be felt. Why Why it demands it, we don't know. We don't know. <laughs> so, Ted, what was the movie you made me watch this week? The movie that I made you watch was Akira Kurosawa's Hidden, The Hidden Fortress. Uh, and this was a film released in 1958 to Japanese audiences. It's a film that is often ranked high in many people's lists of best films ever made. Mm-hmm. Uh, myself, I first experienced this film uh, as a result of a samurai history class, and we had to watch several samurai films. Uh, the others being uh, Harakiri, which was amazing. Oh, I've heard that's really good. R- beautiful, <laughs> breathtaking, epic. Yeah. Um, and the other one being uh, another Kurosawa film, uh, Kagemusha, which... 
Oh, I, I well, I'm going to recommend it to you later in this <laughs> podcast. Uh, but another fantastic film, and this is a film I went into like kind of going with no expectations, just expecting it to be good, and I was blown away by it. What were your thoughts? I really liked it. Let me preface with that. I'm embarrassed to say this is my first uh, Kurosawa film. Don't don't be embarrassed. <laughs> it was mine as well. So. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm hoping to get into Seven Samurai and Rashomon. Probably that one first because that's the shortest of all of them. But stop dropping. I that. <laughs> just I want to clarify. That's the seventh time that his notebook has fallen off his lap. I'm gonna cut this and drop. And <laughs> no, <still>. you won't. <laughs> I feel like this is one of the quintessential adventure movies that has ever been made. A lot of my notes are like specific things I really liked, but generally. I thought this just captured the spirit of adventure and the, like... It's pure fun. Yeah, it's, like, pure entertainment. It's, like, childlike. I'm thinking of, like, Princess Bride and Star Wars, but Mm -hmm. this came well before that. It's, like, a fable, almost. Exactly. There's a mythic quality to it. The the character archetypes are so classic, you know? It it just brims with life, you know? I can't help but, like, smile... When talking about this film, it, mm-hmm. it just, it's just great. It's fantastic. Um, you got a notebook of things or your points. Yeah. So <laughs> just to kind of walk through the different stuff I noticed in the beginning with the prison breakout and then further out through the movie, there's like these masses of people and he, Kurosawa directs them with such clarity and such precision. Um, I've heard people talk about this before with him for other movies of his, but it was one of the first things that I realized. I'm like, man, he really captures just like the crowd ran. That's the other movie where it's like battle of the battle of the bastards took a lot from it. And it's like one of the most expansive, um, war movies. So that was one of the first things I, I came to realize. (laughs) What did you think of, um, kind of the music for this movie? really compelling the music almost has a hidden dare i say fortress a hidden, <laughs> it acts as a hidden fortress uh, say. for a majority of the scenes i feel as if i didn't focus on it but it like got into my mind you know i the one i'm the one the two two scenes i'm thinking about are when the princess is singing um when she's oh, captured my god that was so good amazing uh and the other one was when uh, the, the main character, the, the samurai, uh, general, uh, he, he's chasing another samurai on horseback and he's like dispa- dispatching them one by one. And like the music is like, you know, really ramped up almost to like the beat of the, the horse's yeah. hooves. And it, it's just this really fascinating rhythm where the music feels so tied to the visuals on screen that you can't separate the two. Yeah. I, I, felt the same way that it was like inseparable from what you were actually watching that's interesting that you said that you didn't notice it because i found it i found that it demanded to be heard <laughs> the music i thought it was so intense and really enjoyable but i was wondering why as i was watching it why he made the choice to not hide it at all and i think it actually kind of plays into the mythic fable-esque nature of it where it's like telling this story while like someone plays flute exactly aside, like, like a, a play you're exactly watching a play. like in theater um i thought that was so interesting and like a really a really impactful decision 
that we see made later on in films, um, namely Star Wars, which took a lot from this movie, which was really <laughs> cool to see. I do want to talk about the Star Wars connection, but I don't want it to be the focus of the discussion. No, because be. everything if you Google this film, everything you see is just how it influenced Star Wars. Is yeah. that all we choose to label this film as? Just an inspiration for Star Wars, you know? Yeah, that's really doing it a disservice. But I mean <laughs> Yes, yes, it's valid, but I don't have to like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um so we won't go too much into that. Um, you talk about the scene with the princess singing, and that was really emotional, but also after the sister dies, the princess storms off, and they talk about how she has the burden of not being able to shed a tear, and then we see her, like, alone amid a mountainscape, crying to herself with, like, the flag going, um, faded in. It was a little on the nose, but it was the 50s, so I give it the Again, of the it, it lends itself to that theatrical, mythic... You know, everything is very... I I won't say there are understated performances in this film, but that's not a bad thing. Like, everyone gives it their all in that kind of fun, adventurous way. My mind goes to the, the two peasants that we started the film on. Yes. Um... Those two are hilarious. Like their their banter, <laughs> they're pretty funny. I was laughing at at their at their dialogue for a majority of the film, and I don't think I've ever had that with any like foreign film before. You Where know? it's like genuinely like gets you laughing. Exactly, it's hard to translate comedy. It, that in addition to it being subtitled, yeah, their whole arc uh, <laughs> as friends is so is so. I guess relatable or like, you know, they're, they're bickering and they're bantering and they hate each other and they're always betraying each other. And then through this hardship adventure, like they come out of it as better people yeah. and neither of them wants the reward in the end. Like, oh, you should have it or you should have it. It's, it's very wholesome. It's very, it's cute. It's, it's, it's nice. It is. Yeah. What do you think was the... Why do you think he made the decision to tell the story through these two kind of bumbling peasants? The feudal caste system in Japan, especially Japanese history, is something that I think has lost many Western audiences. It the, the strict social hierarchy dictated so much of their culture. And I think by placing ourselves at the bottom of that hierarchy, we get a larger understanding yeah. Of that system that's in place. And, you know, say, you know, whereas other samurai films would have the protagonist be the samurai. Yeah. Um, they're at the top of the society. And that very much like the cowboy, they can really do whatever they want to anyone. And that has a, a certain compelling quality to it. But I think it's, they have a certain confidence to them that they have a sword. They can, they know how to use it. They can do what you know, they are masters of their own destiny, whereas peasants don't have that, they don't have as much choice as the samurai do. By also making them peasants, we get great interactions with the princess and the samurai general. Yeah. At first, they kind of treat them like, you know, dirt, you know, garbage, and they talk down to them, and they're constantly berating them, and they just kind of take it, because that's their social standing in life. But again, through their adventure... Even the upper class people begin to respect and admire the ingenuity of these two lowly peasants. That's interesting because I ultimately kind of came to the same conclusion as you, but I didn't look at it as like 
class system or like feudal Japan. So kind of like what you talked about with the samurai, it's hard to identify with Makabe because that's more a character you look up, look up to. Definitely. So the movie asks us not to identify with these two peasants, but to experience the adventure through them. So I feel like I'm the third of their trio yeah. walking just a little bit beyond them. <laughs> like really quiet. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really good point um, to make because they were supposed to look up to these characters and Makabe is like one of the greatest um, samurai of his clan and this princess who is an incredible leader who is so compassionate. I, I love the shit in movies where it's like, we have to save this one person and then they like join the adventure. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, it makes me so, <laughs> it makes me so happy. So yeah, I think, I think you're right with that, that they want us to look up to this higher social class or this group of leaders. And it, it works. It adds to the, you know, we put ourselves in the peasant's place and it adds that mythic quality. You know, the samurai are uh, 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 something of history. You know, they're gone. And yeah. here we see them in their splendor, jumping from horse to horse, dueling in a camp filled with uh, other samurai, enemy samurai, en- enemy samurai. I feel as if the hero samurai, he gets away with so much stuff, but because we look up to him, I almost believe it. Yeah. You know, like, if this wasn't a samurai, I'd be like, how is he doing all this? Yeah. If this was the protagonist, it'd be like, oh, okay. This is ridiculous. You know, but he's sort of a supporting character. He is. Kind of. And speaking about supporting characters, one of my favorite tropes in films is rival characters that, like, are just as good as the the hero. And then, like, you know, they, they used to be friends and now they're enemies and then, like, in the moment where they need, they're needed most, the enemy comes to their aid and joins their side. After that singing scene with the princess where the rival holds them captive and they, they're released the next morning, that is, like, the, like, that is why I watch movies. You know, when they, they jump on horseback and they're running, awesome. You know, that kind of fraternal, fraternal love, that fraternal... Uh, camaraderie. That's the yeah. word I'm looking for. I love. And like respect. Mm-hmm. Mutual respect. And he, he spares his life and based out from his love of him. I hate it in movies where it's like it feels like this is what we should do narratively so we're gonna do this. Where it's like oh the bad guy turns good but he has to sacrifice himself and die in the end. We're well into spe- spoiler territory but the fact that he's just like alright <laughs> and he just <laughs> joins them I'm like that's so cool. That's what I want in my movies. Like Quentin Tarantino talks about this kind of on the flip side of like a villain who does horrible things the whole time and then at the end it's like the good guy it's like oh we're gonna spare him because we're better than them. He's like oh. no Django is gonna whip the shit out of that slave master <laughs> and it's gonna be really rewarding to watch. If you kill him you're just as bad as him. Yeah it's like oh fuck off. <laughs> How does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> That's bullshit. Yeah. Yeah I just think this is up in that echelon of pure adventure movies that you show like your young kid that you have fond memories of if you watch at a young age with Star Wars, which we talked about, <laughs> and um, I imagine some other Kurosawa films. So, so it was a good watch. Right? I'm glad you recommended it. Any closing thoughts on Hidden Fortress? This is a film that demands to be experienced. <laughs> to be watched. I don't know if I agree with that. Um, <laughs> it's a whole lot of fun. This is what movies are all about. Uh, I don't think it's possible to not enjoy this film. 
Um, it's a great introduction to samurai films. It is, yeah. Um, and yeah, check it out. It's great. Speaking of that, Ted, what movie will I be checking out next week? I should say our category this coming week is animation. So, what do you got in store for me? I'm going to give you a choice. I want you to pick. Oh no! I don't think I don't think we should do it that way. Uh, well, that's how I'm going to do it. You're going to have to oh, pick because no. okay. I equally want to discuss both of these films for different reasons. Okay. First one is Spirited Away. I have seen that. Okay. <laughs> so that is out. That is out. Uh, that was going to be the one I was going to do for you. <laughs> but I couldn't find it anywhere, so I didn't pick it. Uh, all right. Then my second one is Heavy Metal. I've never even heard of that movie. Heavy Metal, I guess I'll talk about it, is a collection of anthology uh, short animated stories. Uh, and they are all adaptations of a uh, kind of underground, kind of famous uh, European magazine slash comic and it has a fantastic style it is absolutely a product of the 80s and it (laughs) is really weird in a fun way you're not i don't know if you're gonna like it interesting i i can tell from your description i'm like i don't know if this i'm gonna like this this will be our first uh our second one will be (laughs) the first one where one of us doesn't like to recommend a movie but i'll go in with an open mind I've never heard of it. Is there somewhere I can watch it or the people at home listening could watch it? Um, I'm not sure. I think it's on Amazon Prime. Okay. Um, so the movie I'm going to have you watch, I don't think you've seen this, um, is Isle of Dogs. Okay. All right. Yeah, I wanted to see that. Uh... So I promise you're not going to, I'm not only going to pick 2018 movies, but they are all fresh <laughs> in my mind and uh, available on most streaming services. I made you watch Moonrise Kingdom last year, which was, I think, your first Wes Anderson movie? I think so. I'm not sure. Okay. I wanted to pick another one, and I want to continue to expand um, not only my familiarity with his filmography, but also yours, because if I were to make movies, this is how I would compose shots. I would have very symmetrical um, shot composition. Just for that, I think I'm going to make you watch this. It's also genuinely really funny. And I think you're going to like it. So All right. I look forward to it. Yep. And it is on HBO Go. HBO right, Now. Check it out. So those are our two movies for next week. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you can catch next week's episode. That'll hopefully come out on Friday. And hopefully you can watch the movies before then so you can discuss them with us.